0: You're tuned into Holy Smokes, cigars, Catholicism, and conversation. Let my prayer arise in thy sight with incense. I'm your host, Dustin Quick. This is episode five. T- how temple theology changed our minds about Christian origins. I have uh, as a special guest for part two of this conversation my friend and brother Alamy Toledo, who joins me from well, he's trucking right now, so I don't know exactly where. He- but he's somewhere in the United States, uh, hailing from New Jersey. But uh, yeah, we're going to we're gonna do uh, part two of a conversation that we started about a week or so ago. And before we get into that, I um, just wanted to let listeners know, their viewers know that all my cigars are from Havana, Havana Palace, excuse me, Windsor, Ontario, um, here on Church Road. You can see Caesar and Eli, and they'll give you the finest cigars, best service around. So without further ado, uh, just one housekeeping announcement. I just wanted to let everybody know that uh, due to bandwidth restrictions, I have 45 minutes available for this podcast um, until about the 13th of August. So this will be a little bit shorter episode, maybe five minutes shorter than usual, but um, I'll pick it up normal after that time. Just have to let my my free my free account limit do its thing. So we're going to stick to 45 minutes, God willing. It might be difficult to do with this subject, but we're going to do our best. So, uh, without further ado, I would like to reintroduce my guest, Elamine Toledo. And uh, before we get into tonight's conversation or part two thereof, i will just going to, for anybody who maybe missed part one last week, uh, I'm going to let him just recap his uh, journey and how Christ was and is a golden or central uh, thread throughout uh, many pit stops. So go ahead, brother.
1: Thank you, brother. Uh, Peace and blessings. Thank you again for having me. Um, I'll keep it very brief because of the time. Uh, Basically, I converted to Islam when I was 15 years old. Uh, The form of Islam that I had converted to Uh, both accepted the Qur'an and the Bible as authoritative texts, and so that as my foundation was the open gate for me to begin my journey to God. Um, After several years, decades of studying Islam, uh, reading the Bible, reading the Qur'an, I always accepted Jesus but I read the Bible through uh, kind of like a solo scripture perspective. Right. And as a result of that, I, devoid, I was devoid of context, which took Christ out of the paradigm of temple theology, which we will get into. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until when I converted to Islam, it was 1988. It wasn't until approximately 1998-2000 that I ran into uh, an unofficial mentor and teacher of mine, uh, Dr. Wesley Muhammad, who uh, opened up my eyes to a whole lot in regards to academics, uh, in regards to how to understand the scriptures from a historical perspective, and therefore led the context or led me to research of Margaret Barker, which we talked about last week. Mm -hmm. Um, Between Margaret Barker and Dr. Wesley Muhammad, uh, along with a whole host of other books, uh, the crisis opened up. It just like,
0: Mm.
1: it was like a a blossoming of a flower.
0: Right, right, right. um,
1: And so I owe both Barker and Dr. Wesley Muhammad A Tremendous amount of honor uh, And through them I also met you uh, And we've established A good brotherhood and friendship um, That's lasted 10 years at least Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, so pretty much That's pretty much about it Uh, You know, just trying to understand Who Christ is uh, In history, context and, And also just As a result of, because normative Islam, and this will segue, I guess, us into the topic. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, Normative Islam, as well as uh, Protestant Islam, I mean, Protestant Christianity, uh, tends to read scripture just in regards to just picking up the book and, you know, reading through it maybe getting a Bible dictionary. Uh, mm-hmm. and,
0: concordance. And,
1: and, right, a concordance or something like that. And as a result, I think in many respects, uh, at least for normative Islam, they truly do not gauge the concept of Israelite religion. Mm. And and as a result of lacking Israelite religion understanding, they lack understanding of who Jesus was.
0: Naturally, yeah.
1: And one of the problems also is is that, and this is a mistake that I think so many people make, is that they they assume that the groups that exist today is teaching the same thing that the group taught in pre-modern times or Mm in ancient times. So, for instance, uh, Protestant Christians automatically, by default, are teaching first century Christianity. Sure. Um, You know, pick any group of Muslims, they're automatically teaching what Prophet Muhammad taught. Or uh, Dealing with Judaism or Israelite religion, go to the rabbis of today, and they automatically, by default, are teaching what uh, First Temple or Israelite religion taught. And by doing that, I think they do a disservice because it's a lot of assumptions that are made. uh, And as a result, everyone's talking over each other's heads, and no one comes to a greater understanding which we are going to get, in, uh, Lord willing, today.
0: Yeah, amen. Uh, that was very well stated. and It was a very nice segue into uh, some of the particulars of what we're going to be discussing. So, uh, again, the topic is how temple theology changed our minds about Christian origins. Well, before temple theology, that necessitates that there was minds to be changed. Well, changed from what? Uh, we had particular assumptions, and because we've both been in Islam, we can speak to that, right? So uh, I know you said the particular um, sort of frameworks of Islam that you were dealing with, you, you, they kind of more readily accepted the Bible along with the Quran. but when I came to Islam, it was like straight-up Sunni orthodoxy. So um, the Bible was pretty much disparaged, Um Uh, and and basically the only things that you could glean that were truthful were those things which lined up with the Quran. and even then, uh, the biblical texts therein were filtered through Islamic interpretation. Um, So, you know, one of the things that we often heard was, well, this whole Jesus being divine thing, that was not the understanding of the earliest Christians. Uh, Simple Jewish Christians who were Torah observant monotheist where god is uh he's the only one possessing divinity he's a monad um and that's it that's monotheism that's tawhid and um the the jews of jesus's day and the religion of jesus himself was simply that he was a human prophet the messiah and um he had no trace of divinity he was purely human and um, this whole elevating Jesus to divine status is uh, something that came later on down the story when, you know, and there's various boogeymen that people blame, the Emperor Constantine or mm-hmm. is it, always a big one, right? He, in order to keep peace in the empire, he basically took Christianity and he superimposed it over paganism uh, with the sun god. And Sol Invictus, which is funny because Sol Invictus didn't wasn't invented until after Christianity came on the scene, but we won't talk about that. Um, um, but, anyways, so yeah, it was just basically paganism. And the fall guy for Saint Paul was, it was, the, was the fall guy because here's this you know former Pharisee, he has this conversion, and unfortunately, because he was so Hellenized and the other good Jews weren't, he was able to take Uh, pagan concepts and Jewish concepts and create this new religion, and he was some sort of arch-heretic or arch-deceiver. So that's a popular narrative. Now, um, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, I understand that you went through—we discussed last time the book The Great Angel, A Study of Israel's Second God by Barker, and I understand that you pulled some relevant quotations— so that's what I want to speak to is about, we're going to kind of discuss uh, that those ideas uh, to start off.
1: Yeah, I um <clears throat> one of the first things were in regards to well not the first thing but one of several things that I had taken note of uh, over the years is that in First Temple theology the the enactments of the priest from the garbs he wears to uh, how he does the rituals and things of that nature, all were symbolic of something that was taking place. And for the sake of time, uh, we could just say it was a basically a theophany taking place. Exactly. And as a result of that, uh the high priest was at the end of the day spoken of when he wore his garments, He was Yahweh in person. And with this backdrop, with this backdrop, uh, we fast forward to the New Testament times and this was, we all know that Jesus was the high priest of the earliest Christians. Mm-hmm. And in order for Jesus to be the high priest of the early Christians, he had to function in similar ways as the first high priest of the, old temp- uh, of the first temple. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was eye-opening for me was when the high priest in the Old Testament would wear the name Yahweh on the forehead and or the name on the forehead
0: mm-hmm.
1: and or the name placed in the, in the individual
0: right. and
1: I noticed uh, in reading Barker several years ago uh, several times one of the things that she says in, um, in the great angel Israel's uh, second God on page 208 she says As early as the fourth gospel, which is the gospel of John, we find Father glorify thy name in 12.8 and glorify thy son in 17.1. She says John knew that the name was the son. He said that Jesus had manifested the name in the world, almost as though the name had been something separate, which Jesus took upon himself. This is exactly how other early writers described the process the name was put on and so she she's you know correlating how the high priest would put on the name on you know put on the name on the, the, the turban and Jesus was putting on the name upon himself. you see what I'm saying and, and, and we would know, we would understand that to be the, uh, the incarnation
0: right exactly yeah. Uh, so the, the, vest, that, the, the vesting, right? He's putting right. on his priestly his priestly garments.
1: Correct, correct.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And and she also goes on to say here, uh, the most freq- frequent imagery was that of robing, or of being marked on the forehead. And then she goes on to say Clement of Alexandria had known the significance of the high priestly vestments, and then she qu- she goes on to quote. Uh, his uh, excerpts from uh, Theodosius and, and et cetera. So that was that was on page 208 and 209. You know, okay. so that was you know it's it it's it was little nuggets like this that kind of started chipping away at how I was beginning to understand in a better light who Christ was. Sure. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, more than more than just because even in Islam. One of the things in the Quran, it talks about uh, the station of all the prophets.
0: Yeah, the and maqam. It says that, right, the maqam. And it talks about how Allah raised
1: some prophets above others, uh, but there is no distinction between them. They are all from the Most High. And so this, it, from, from my studies, this had fit in perfectly with giving Jesus his rightful due as Yahweh in in form. See, and I think this was another another and again I know it's time, but this this is another nugget because I think the problem when coming talking over each other's heads is that when Christians say Yahweh, Muslims understand Allah. Yeah. And as a result, they, they're saying, how can, Muslims are saying, how can this be Allah, how can Jesus be Allah, but if, if Christians could understand First Temple theology, you see what I'm saying, then it would be contextualized, and Allah as the Absolute, or the Most High, or El, or
0: El Ilyon. Or the Father, right? Or the Father, right. Yeah, that would be the context of,
1: and and Jesus as Yahweh would be the son.
0: The son, yeah.
1: You see, what I'm saying so. So it it kind of falls into context as you start understanding. Another um thing that that came to light was uh some of the texts that Barker had used, uh and some of the early first uh, century Christians. In regards to what their thoughts were of who Jesus was, she says uh, prayers was offered to the Lord. Curios, hmm. curios is Yahweh, right? And throughout the uh, Greek New Testament and Old Testament, curios is Yahweh. It's the equivalent,
0: yeah, exactly. Uh-huh.
1: So when Jesus referred, so when the disciples referred to him as Lord, they were saying curios. Uh, which was in turn calling him
0: Yahweh. Yahweh, so, and, and that's it's funny. It, sorry to cut you off. I just no, wanted no. to just wanted to interject. That's why is that so important, brother? Because how often do we hear the apologetic or the claim that, well, when they're calling him Lord, they're just meaning it in a, a title of respect and honor, like you would honor a judge or, or something, or or their master. Something. Right, right. But no, right. he it's the same word in the in the Greek Septuagint. And as we know, the New Testament was written in Greek. So the Greek Old Testament uses the same word, "curios," which is the tetragrammaton, which is the name of Yahweh.
1: Right, exactly. So Barker goes on to say, the disciples worshiped Jesus after the ascension in Luke 24, 52. They prayed to him for guidance when choosing a replacement for Judas, Acts 1, 24. The dying Stephen prayed, presumably to the heavenly judge, since he said lord yahweh do not hold this sin against them acts 760 and paul prayed to him three times about the thorn in the flesh which was troubling him second corinthians 12:8 christians were exhorted to reverence christ as the lord first peter 3:15 and even the heavenly host was exhorted to worship the son hebrews 1:6 A quotation from the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32, 43, which had originally referred to Yahweh. Jesus also interceded for his followers in Hebrews 7, 25. Uh, It says, Pliny wrote of Christians singing hymns to Christ as God in Pliny's letters, uh, 1096. Uh, She also says, and I'm skipping a little bit. Sure. uh, Thomas recognized Jesus as my Lord and my God, John twenty twenty eight, 28, um, Romans 9, 5, as we have seen, may refer to Christ as God, Hebrews 1, 8, quotes of Jesus in the Septuagint of Psalms 45, 6, which can be read, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Eusebius was later to use this psalm to demonstrate that there were two gods in the Old Testament, and he was adamant that any other reading showed a defective knowledge of Hebrew. Uh, Ignatius, in A.D. 106, wrote of Jesus Christ our God, Ephesians 18, and applied him to Psalms 33.9. Now, I know if there's some Muslims watching, they will say, well, the Qur'an says if there was two gods, I mean, there can't be two gods because... Uh, if there was two gods, one's will would have to subside mm. to the other's will. Yes. And this, in, in, in surface, sounds like a good logical argument. Yeah, of See, course. This, this, is, this is why Scripture says, rely not on thy own understanding. You know what I mean? Because the way we think of things is not the way, one, the early writers thought of things, uh-huh. and two, it's not the intent of the Most High. So right. we have to try to understand the context and the intent of the writers and the Most High through the inspiration of, of the Spirit of God. Mm-hmm. Now, when 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 it is said here, it demonstrates that there were two gods in the Old Testament. There's only one being that's yeah. divine. Yeah. Or or one one being that's absolute. Yes. Okay. And from that one being manifests other beings of force and power or Godship. Yeah. Okay. And, but they have that, that existence within the most high.
0: That's right. Mm -hmm. You see, so,
1: so they're not separate.
0: They're together. Yeah. They're bound up. I mean, and that's just it. I think, see, I think when the, when the Quran's talking in that manner, I think it's, I think it's assuming. Um, separate, I, I, even if you could, I, it's pointing. It, it's pointing to the absurdity of the concept of two separate or more absolutes, which couldn't exist. Number one, metaphysically, it would be impossible. Number two, their wills would be at odds. But right. the way that you're explaining it, and the way that you know classical Christian uh, metaphysics understands it, is that like you said, there's one absolute existence unoriginate and the fount of all divinity and existence which would be the father and the father eternally begets or brings forth uh, a second person which is is in him at all times and the love that proceeds uh, and you know spirates between them back and forth that's the holy spirit right so it's not it's not separate concrete divine entities And I think that's important to note. And, uh, yeah, and and basically, like, I was thinking about this the other day. When we're dealing with Old Testament allusions to the Lord, 99% of the time it's going to be the Son, because it is understood by early Christians that the Son is the one who could, quote-unquote, come into contact with the world. The Father is virtually unknowable. And even, you know, pagan philosophers agreed on this, right? The absolute is unknowable. But the unique thing about the Christian claim, and Jesus makes this clear, is that, number one, nobody knows the Father except the Son, but also with the revelation of the Son come into the world, now is a special time in dispensation, because now he can make the Father known to his fol- to His followers as he himself knows and loves the Father. So now we're in a different age, we're at the end of the age where the Father is now revealed in the Son to creation, whereas before it was just the second person who could, quote unquote, manifest in anthropomorphic theophanies and and all that other stuff. But we don't really, you don't really hear, quote, or see uh, much of the Father, and Jesus himself said that, right, Uh, no man has seen God at any time nor heard his voice, he's talking about the Father. The only one with that expressed privilege is the Son because he's eternally begotten of him from all eternity.
1: And, and the, the thing is that it's, it's understanding these little nuggets and First Temple theology. Uh, and I know there's a lot of critics of it or some critics of it uh, because in many respects, its approach has changed the course of conversation that's right because at the end of the day it was just a matter of your interpretation of the bible versus my interpretation of the bible yeah and so until until this contextualization has come into play it's your word against mine and you know my spirit is stronger than your spirit or whose divine spirit is more authoritative it's like two boxes going into the ring and saying uh I prayed to God for victory. Well, whose God
0: is going to knock the, the other one out? <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so contextualization is uh, very
1: important. Now, one, one of the other final things—this one's a little bit uh, more in depth—but
0: mm-hmm.
1: on page 222, she goes on to talk about. Uh, this is not to suggest that. The very first disciples called by Galilee immediately recognized Jesus in this way. The gospel traditions themselves make clear that right to the, to the right one, right to the very end, the disciples had failed to recognize Jesus. So she's saying, see, and this is why it's difficult when people want to make everything black and white
0: mm-hmm.
1: because revelation is an unfolding. And so when you're just taking solo scripture and you try to pull something out, out of the context, you could come up with things like, oh, the disciples didn't see Jesus as God.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You see
1: what I'm saying? So, so this is this. She's con- uh, contextualizing it here. She's saying, uh, so the disciples had failed to recognize Jesus, Luke 24, uh, 25 to 27. Such recognition as we have in the accounts of the ministry must have come from a later stage of realization, when the stories were recalled and retold with the wisdom of hindsight. So she's saying that once everything unfolded, and everybody was looking back at everything that transpired, they understood everything in the context. Yes. Yeah. Hindsight is twenty twenty.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So then it says, uh, as opposed to some people who think that. There's just a bunch of councils getting together and and uh, uh, conspiring to deify Jesus. You know,
0: this not, this wasn't
1: the case. You know what I'm saying? Right. This, right. They were just understanding it from a hindsight perspective.
0: That's right. Yeah. Uh,
1: so then she says it is perhaps best to read the New Testament in the light of Philo's usage. Uh, mm. He knew that Curios and Theos were the main aspects of the chief of the angels. The word. Curios was the word. As ruler and theos was the word as creator. Now, this also contextualized for me when Jesus is called Kalim Allah in the Quran. Mm -hmm. The word of Allah. No other prophet is given that uh,
0: title. That's true. Yep. So then she goes on to say, Curios dominates
1: in the New Testament. Since so much is expressed in terms of the royal traditions, there is no need to search through the contemporary cults of divine kingship and suggest that the curios is evidence of the Hellenization or paganization of early Christianity. Mm, so nice. she's saying that the evidence is so overwhelming in the context that it fits in that you don't even have to search in the pagan world.
0: That's right. That's it's not right. a borrowing. Mm-hmm. She says, the same is true
1: of Theos. It is used wherever it is appropriate and need not be a sign of the later deification of Jesus, where later implies in a Greek or pagan context. The prologue to the fourth gospel deals with the mystery of the creation and therefore calls the word Theos, God. Philo's distinction between God, the second God, and the God, the most high God, is there too. The word was with God and was God. Thomas exclaimed, my Lord and my God, uh, not because he thought that there was a difference between the two, but because, as Philo said, he was uttering a double invocation to the powers, the creative and the kingly. Then she goes on to say, Paul, who had been most zealous for the traditions of his people, was able to quote Old Testament Yahweh text mm-hmm. to describe Jesus. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, i. e. Yahweh, Romans yeah. ten thirteen, was originally said of Yahweh in Joel two thirty two. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord Yahweh will not reckon his sin. Romans four eight was originally said of Yahweh in Psalms thirty two two. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Ephesians 4:8 was originally a description of Yahweh's appearing in his holy place and then returning to heaven. Psalm 68, 18. Um, and then one last point uh, she puts, uh, Paul also knew that Christ had been present in the events of the Old Testament. The clearest example of this is 1 Corinthians 10. 1 through 11, where he describes the desert wanderings of Israel and says that the rock was Christ. Mm-hmm. In the Song of Moses, the rock is one of the names of Yahweh. Deuteronomy 32 4 and 31. So, I mean, there's a whole host of other. I mean, this book is a must have. Yes, sir. For anyone who is looking to get into understanding the context of First Temple theology.
0: Amen. Thanks so much for those quotes, brother. Those were very very appropriate and powerful. um, Jam-packed. So from that, we can glean um, a couple of things. Number one, uh, the first Christians, right right back to the New Testament itself, understood to be Jesus as Yahweh um, incarnate. It wasn't a later invention. And number two, they were able to do that because they saw him as the great high priest, the, the mediator in temple theology, which, interestingly enough, and we don't have too much longer, so we might have to do a part three and unpack this uh, this priesthood. Because there's there's actually, before you mentioned something really interesting, you said when the priests were performing their duties in the first temple, they were reenacting something. That's so important. That's so important because what we have in the in, in the Genesis story in the Genesis narrative is, is basically uh, God in the form of light, uh, his self disclosure or manifestation to the universe as a, as a form of light, and then to shield creation from his glory, he is wrapped in the elements of matter so that creation is not obliterated by his divine form. So, right in the Genesis account, we have sort of a macro type of the Incarnation. This creation falls down, and in order for it to be restored, the microcosmic high priest and macro meet, and so creation is pulled back up to what it was intended to be in the beginning. That's the overarching story. But... I say that to say, to ask the question, what were the high priests in the temple reenacting? Well, they were essentially reenacting a type of the Genesis story. Where,
1: a creation.
0: Yeah, exactly. Where where the, the, the high priest comes into the temple, like God coming into creation, robing himself in matter. That's why they had the outer garments, and it was a purplish, bluish hue, symbolizing all elements of matter combined into one so that creation could not be destroyed and god could still abide with his creation with his people uh, in this manner in, in a human form and this is what the uh, first temple priests were doing and uh, that so that was the, the you know the central part of the ritual and to repair creation the sins of the people which affected all of creation as well uh, they would have to make atonement and the atonement was not as i understood it Um, as a a Protestant Christian, was to appease the wrath of an angry God with blood sacrifice. Uh, Yes, life is in the blood, but it was more the high priest gave his own life, God gave his very own life in order to restore the bonds of creation in harmony, uh, people to people, and people with the creation, creation with the creator. And this was done once a year. And so when Christ finally came, All of these rituals and reenactments and symbols were now in person perfection, and he actually accomplished in his person and in his mission what these temple priests were symbolically doing. So that's important, and that's important because if we're to ask the question, well, why then did did the first Christians see Jesus as divine? It wasn't they weren't simply cherry picking quotes out of the Old Testament. They they were able to do that because they had a prior frame of reference to put those quotes in. And this this
1: this is also what Barker discusses in regards to the extra canonical texts.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: um, the Book of Enoch. You know, um, the life of Adam and Eve. You know, all these different uh, texts that, if you observe them, the Dead Sea Scrolls. If, yeah. You, you know, all of these different texts were were built and written in this biblical world view. And so in order to understand these types and concepts and ideas, you have to look at these and, and this is another thing that that brought me to a greater understanding of who Christ was and is is that just about every text you look at from yeah. the the Bible to the extra-canonical books, Jesus is looked at as a divine figure. Yeah. Like, there is no for lack of a better wording, Unitarian, you know, non-divine Jesus in these texts, whether right. it's Gnostics, you know, yeah. whether it's, uh, uh, you know, whoever you want to refer to, it's, it's they're not there. Yes, there were individuals that, that started groups later on that, that were, you know, in the church history, sure. obviously they fought over. But for the most part, they were fighting over what aspects of the scripture stated. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, so, for instance, like uh, Doceticism or or, 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 or Arianism,
0: sure. You know, they were taking certain verses and, and trying to understand certain verses
1: in light of who Jesus was but when you look at the whole context there's no other choice but to see him the way he is
0: yeah I mean that's that's huge right because it it runs flat in the face of that whole you know like what I was told was if you go to the earliest Christians you'll see a human Jesus point blank period it's going to be like the majority like if you could focus in on the earliest years that's going to be the majority view uh but that's not the case. It's not the case at all. Like you said, whether you go to, to Gnostic texts, even Aryans, like, you know, people, Muslims always say, well, there's Aryans. They didn't believe Jesus was God. Well, that's not entirely true. I mean, yes, they believed he was created, but he was still the first creation right. and he was still like a universal archetype. So right. he wasn't just like some human being that was here 2000 years ago. And even, you know, Bart Ehrman. Uh, has conceded in recent years that the Synoptic Gospels do not present a, a merely mortal Jesus either. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's, there's no way, there's no way you could
1: read from uh, from Matthew to Revelations and and take it in one whole context and and see Jesus other than being a divine uh, figure in person. You know, yeah. there, now yes, if you want to cherry pick. You can do that, but uh, it's, it's just not there. It's just not there.
0: Yeah, and that's you know goes to the importance of you know this whole idea of Sola scriptura, who by the way or which by the way, Margaret Parker is very critical of, which is interesting because she's confessionally a Protestant herself. but even she says that this whole idea of Sola scriptura, especially when you're trying to understand the uh, you know the classic Christian view, in light of First Temple theology, if you're going to have a Sola Scriptura as your guidepost, it's not going to work very well. Um, and precisely for the reason you mentioned. Uh, you could pick and choose verses, and you can make out of them whatever you want. And that's precisely why the Church has had councils, you know, of dealing with the person of Christ. And it's funny, because at some of these councils, they would name certain heretics, like Nestorius or Arius, and they would say, these people interpret Scripture on their own— which is exactly what people do today and claim divine authority, but they don't have the actual authority to do so. Um, That's why, you know, it's always been through the lens of the Church. And if you look at the, the Church dogmas on the person of Christ and the natures of Christ and the Godhead, it's what you can find in the First Temple, which isn't surprising, because Barker ultimately ties all of this back to the First Temple. And, you know, Christianity or let me say apostolic Christianity is because everyone says it's a, it's a bastardization of the ancient Hebrew understanding, but Barker turns this whole assumption on his head and establishes that no, the, uh, the apostolic Christians have restored and retained the most ancient Hebrew faith, which right. is a very, very important point. Yes, sir.
1: Yes, sir. And, and, and again, you know, it's, it's just interesting because um without 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 understanding the context again, it goes to the issue of talking over each other's heads, mm-hmm. and this is why um you know it's it's even why when 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 I started to understand because a lot of Muslims don't think of. The rituals that exist within Islam, in in context, you know, they're just oh these are these are the rituals set up,
0: just taken know, for granted, yeah. Right, they're just taken for granted, so they never look to understand, and and
1: it is only through uh, uh, through embracing and com- conversing with uh, with history in context, because again, it's not devoid of, you know, it just didn't just fall out of the sky. Correct. Yeah. And, and this is what I think people need to realize in order to bring it into a, a, a context. That, you know, there's, there's reasons why the Kaaba was chosen. There was reasons why they do the circle of there's, there's reason why they do this the, the, the ritual prayers the way that they do. All of these things have context and imagery that goes back to a temple theology. And So if if they if they begin to understand the origins of their own system, then they Hmm. can embrace the system that Christians have as well as Jews, and then they it it, it's almost a a family. It's almost in my perspective, it would almost be like a reuniting of the family. Mm
0: -hmm. You
1: see what I'm saying? A a a disgruntled uh, family. That, that have broke apart because everybody thinks that they're the chosen mom and dad left us money you know and and so we, we, we're going to take the money and run. but if we if we understand that the goods of the of the family belongs to all of us and we can embrace it and still be brothers you know in in, in Christ and in, in God then it will bring us closer at least
0: yeah. from my perspective. Yeah, no, that's very wise words. I think that's uh, a good note to uh, pretty much end on. So, uh, speaking of, you know, that's one thing we got to touch on too in the future. Let's uh, let's let's do part three. We're gonna have to because forty-five minutes is already up. <laughs> yeah, we got dealing with this whole Abraham thing and covenant. Well, the, the, a major facet of First Temple theology and and Christian theology is just that the Abrahamic or eternal covenant, which is extremely really important. Yeah. So we're going to have to deal with that and maybe other topics on a future show. Maybe the next time I record, we'll do part three. So anyways, um, I'm going to end. First, I'm going to thank my guest. Uh, thank you, brother, for coming on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for and, having me, brother. Uh, yeah, my pleasure. And I'm just going to end with an Our Father and a Hail Mary. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forget those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. And peace in the Lamb is truly wonderful. We will see you guys next time for episode 6, perhaps uh, part 3 of this conversation. Peace and blessings. Peace.